the Church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, Watermark Church. Maybe I should say Watermark Community Church. I think I was told to say that at some point. Uh, what, what a joy it is to be able to bring God's word to you this morning from 1 Corinthians 14. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians 14. Let me just thank uh, Blake and the elders as well as TA and John for the opportunity to, to open God's word together. I, I don't know if I should thank them for this specific passage, but the opportunity to open God's word, I'm so grateful and uh, I look forward to, uh, to diving in with you. I love sports. Maybe you can identify with this. I, I enjoy watching sports. I, I don't care the kind of sport that it is. I enjoy even more attending sports events. Basketball, baseball, football, soccer, car racing. I mean, you name it. Summer, Olympics, Winter Olympics. So you can imagine my excitement when my kids got old enough to play sports. I, I longed for the day. And so I was eager to jump in with them. So eager that I was able to, I've been able to coach their teams over the years. And, and uh, <clears throat> one particular year when my youngest uh, son began to play, uh, we were in, in one of the early uh, practices of baseball, which they've kind of chosen to, to focus on. And, and uh, I was te- teaching one particular boy how to throw a baseball. And no matter how much I worked with this kid, this is how he would throw. <laughs> and I, I mean, I want to be like, what, what are you? Are you Michael Jackson? Like, I don't know what this spin move is, but I do know that's, that's not a proper way to throw a baseball. And it was evident by the ball going in all kinds of directions. And, and so what was needed, no matter what sport it was, whether it was baseball or, or basketball or soccer, whatever it was, in those early years when kids really kind of for the first time began to play, they needed something because there was just chaos, right? They didn't get open for the ball. They just kind of run in huddles no matter where the ball was. They weren't getting open. They, I mean, there were kids in the outfield, like, you know, catching butterflies and, and turning their hats around and, uh, you know, just kind of running around. And they wanted to pitch, so they run into the infield and try to do something. I mean, it was utter chaos. And what was needed in those early years and as, as you play and as you begin to, to grow, what was needed in those early years was, was immaturity, development. Kids needed to, to know their roles, to, to know their positions. They needed to know what, what their responsibilities were. They needed to know what their teammates' responsibilities were. Each kid had to learn how to talk to their teammates. Each kid had to learn that it wasn't all about them, but the, the team coming together and playing together as a team. They, they needed self-control. They needed order. They needed all kinds of things, which, which come as you play, as you practice, as you become more experienced. As we think about Corinthians, this, this is exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. There was all kinds of sin and we've been able to see those things as we've walked through 1 Corinthians over the past several months. People were coming in and, and they were acting selfishly. They were, they were not treating others as God uh, designed them to treat others. They weren't loving God and loving others as themselves. They were... They were 
having inappropriate relations with their father's wives. They were suing each other. They were not loving each other. They were seeking their own contentment. They were seeking their own position. They were seeking their own gain. Whatever it was, there was selfishness and sin and immaturity. And Paul writes into this situation to instruct them so that the church might be healthy, that the church might be exactly what God designed it to be. And when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, this is exactly where we are. When they gather together as a whole church, kind of like what we're doing now, the picture was no different. They, they weren't coming into their corporate public gatherings with the intention to love others, with the intention to bless others. They weren't using their spiritual gifts to bless and, and build up others. No, they were misusing their gifts in a selfish way, in a disruptive way with little regard for others. So Paul takes this opportunity in his letter to write and to instruct them so that they might live with one another for the common good, for the, for the good of one another. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The main point's pretty simple. He actually gives it to us right out of the gates. I'll read verses one through five. Paul says, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Why does he say this? Because or for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. I mean, this is a rhetorical statement. Just like he said in, in 1 Corinthians 7, now I wish that you all, were all as I am, single. He's doing this to make a point. What's his point? But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Not greater in the sense of superior, but greater in the sense that it brings benefit to the whole. Unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So, so here is what I would summarize is Paul's main point. When you gather together as a whole church for public or corporate worship like right now, Love others by using your gifts, especially your words, for others' growth in Christ. When you gather together as a whole for corporate or public worship, love others by using your gifts, especially your words, for others' growth in Christ. Now, there's two things I want us to note before we jump into chapter 14 more deeply. One, Paul is addressing when they come together as a whole. You might have heard those words. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together. So he isn't talking about, right, two brothers, sisters in Christ, five people gathering for coffee. He isn't talking about, you know, kind of serving in the kids' ministry, valuable ways to serve. He's talking about corporate worship. 
And corporate worship in Corinth was much more participatory than what we experience here, like right now. That's just the nature of the church here, right? There were various kinds of church in the early church. And Corinth was one was more like a house church. And so they were a little bit more free to, to participate and use their word gifts to speak. There were other churches that were bigger and didn't do that. So, so we have to understand the situations a little bit different. Though the situation's the same in that it addresses public corporate worship. The second thing is that Paul is addressing a specific problem. It's why he keys in on two things, namely prophecy and tongues. He kind of summarizes this in verse one. Pursue love, that's chapter 13, which we heard from last week. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It's what we heard in chapter 12, actually how 1231 ends. So, so he's not denigrating the other gifts. He's saying, no, earnestly desire those. Use the gifts that God's given you. But he takes this moment to address a specific problem in which their gifts were being misused, namely the gift of prophecy in tongues. Which raises the question, what are prophecy in tongues? Thankfully, that's not a debated issue. I'm just kidding, that's a joke. <laughs> it has been a debated issue. So, so we need to define our terms. So first, what is Prophecy. Prophecy is true and authoritative revelation from God. True and authoritative revelation from God. Now, some have maybe you know, understood or maybe you thought about maybe prophecy being, oh, just kind of an encouraging word or maybe that's what pre preaching is or, or teaching or some kind of like spirit, you know, inspired kind of interpretation of scripture or just speaking an encouraging word to, some, now, to someone now, we ought to be doing those things, but, but I want to say that prophecy is actually a more technical term than that in Scripture. Where do I get that from? I'm glad you asked. Right? I get that in places like 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 and following. Here's what it says. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what's said. And if revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged. Did you catch that? Prophecy, revelation, prophecy, they're used interchangeably. I think they're mutually interpreting. Furthermore, this is what, how it fits with the rest of Scripture. So, for example, a very important text in Deuteronomy 18 in which Moses, the prophet, is speaking to Israel. Moses says there's going to come a day and God's going to give you another prophet. And this prophet's going to speak truth. And you'll know this prophet speaks truth by the fact that his words are true and become true. If he doesn't speak God's truth, if his words aren't true, that they don't come true, then don't listen to that prophet. And that prophet, will, that false prophet, will pay the consequences. They will be judged for speaking in the name of God, the revelation of God. So reject it. Why? Because that's not God's true and authoritative revelation. So what did God do? In fulfillment of God's promises, he gave them prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Nathan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, the 12. They declared God's revelation for the present and the future. In the same way, when Jesus came to fulfill God's saving promises in the New Testament, what, did, what, what does Ephesians 2.20 uh, 2 tell us? God gave apostles, he gave prophets. 
in the early church to what? To communicate God's authoritative, true revelation. And this true and authoritative revelation became the foundation of the church. So prophecy communicates God's true and authoritative revelation. As for tongues, tongues are known languages, unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearers. Known languages, unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearers. We see this, for example, in Acts chapter 2, chapter 10, chapter 19. You can write those down for later. You probably know the story at Pentecost. In fulfillment of God's promises in Christ, when the Spirit would come and the church would be born, Acts 2 tells us that they, the apostles, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And each one was hearing them speak in their own language. You see that? Tongues, language. Now in Acts, there were people from all kinds of nations and languages. And when the apostles spoke, what did each person hear? They heard the word of God. They heard the word about Christ in their own language. Now in Acts, no interpreters were needed. This is important. In Acts, no interpreters were needed because there were people there from various nations and languages. There were people there, in other words, who understood the various languages. But this is different than Corinth. This was not the case at the church at Corinth, right? And because there were not various kinds of people who understood various kinds of known languages, because they weren't there, Paul puts a, a stopgap in place. What's that stopgap? Stopgap interpreters. Interpreters were needed to understand, to hear God's word. So the important thing is that, that the gift of tongues was the same in Acts and 1 Corinthians, but the situation was different, which is why Paul addressed it. People were speaking in languages that no one understood. And Paul's like, if that's going on there, it's not beneficial. It's not helping anyone. And this is where we come to our first point. In verses one through five, we learn first that corporate worship helps others grow in Christ. I want us to see four things in this passage. Corporate worship helps others grow in Christ. All right, Paul begins by telling them to what? To pursue love and to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that they may prophesy. There, there's a strength here to the word pursue. Paul is saying to intentionally look for ways to bless and build up others. Pursue love. So we saw last week from TA, right? Love, as he said, is a verb. There's action behind it. Yes, we can pray for spiritual gifts, but in the midst of that, pursue love. It's not a passive activity. It's a spirit-given, spirit-driven effort on our part to serve others. And he says that if they're speaking in uninterpreted tongues, in languages that no one knows, then it's not beneficial. But on the other hand, if one prophesies, that one, that person builds up and encourages 
and comfort. Why is this important for us? I would imagine in a gathering this large that there are all kinds of burdens that are brought in. We come in here discouraged, torn down, beaten down, suffering all kinds of, of difficulties and conflict. We sin against others, others sin against us. So there's a spiritual and emotional and relational and physical suffering. And we need to be reminded of what God has said, said and done for us in Christ. When you're reminded by the songs that we sing, that God is faithful. That, that we can join one day in that song being sung that worthy is the lamb who was slain. We need to be reminded that that in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our discouragements, that there is King Jesus seated on a throne because his work is finished. There's no more to be done. And, And so we need to speak to one another words of encouragement, words that strengthen, words that comfort. We need to be reminded not to waste our words so that we can be prepared to go out from this place and be faithful in this world as we seek to follow Christ. The second thing we see in this passage is that corporate worship is understandable. Verses six through 25, corporate worship is understandable. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will they get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none without, without, without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, here's his main point. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? How can they say it's true to what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it's written by people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people? And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign for, not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
They'll say you're crazy. But if I'll prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. In these verses, Paul basically runs with the problem of, of kind of misinterpreted, misunderstood, unintelligible tongues. Basically, he kind of runs with tongues gone bad. And he gives clear illustrations using things that would be familiar with them. He says that if instruments do not give a clear and a correct sound, there will be chaos. There will be misunderstanding, right? Paul understood that instruments do something. We just experienced this. A flute and a harp. That's, we didn't experience a flute and a harp. Paul's illustration. A flute and a harp must give clear notes and a bugle must give the correct note. Now, apparently there are like dozens of sounds that a bugle can make. Sorry, I don't have a bugle to blow. Like T.A. had cymbals to clang last week. But you kind of get the concept. If it blows the wrong sound, the military will not be prepared for battle. So it must give both a clear and a correct note, right? We don't have like some electric guitar solo going rogue in the middle of worship, right? That would be disorderly. It might be cool, but it wouldn't be helpful. In the same way, fulfilling our purpose in corporate worship requires clear and correct words. It's why everything we do, we, do to, we want to be driven by truth. The songs we sing, the words that are spoken. There's a reason why we're walking through 1 Corinthians. I had a very illustrious two and a half years in band in junior high. And I was the kind of, 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 uh, of band member that when my friends dared me to start playing a different song in the middle of a band concert, I would just start doing it. You didn't have to threaten me with a good time. Or if someone dared me, true story, to just sneeze so violently into my horn during a concert that I fell off the back of the podium in my chair, putting my own body at risk for the sake of a laugh, I would do it. And I did do it. That's why I only made it two and a half years. Needless to say, I was not a helpful band member because I did not give clear and correct notes. In the same way, Paul says, look, if there's not clear communication that's understood, then others can't understand what's being said. And if they can't understand what's being said, they're not going to be built up. They're not going to grow in Christ. So he says, if you're going to speak in tongues, fine, but make sure it's interpreted. And how do you make sure? Use your mind, engage your mind, which by the way, kind of seems out of place with what we often see on television of the practice of tongues. It's often chaotic and, and unintelligible, disorderly, mindless. But Paul says, no, engage your mind. Don't be carried away. So speak clearly, speak correctly. So he tells them in verse 20, grow up, right? You're being immature. 
You're thinking about yourself. Grow up. And to make his point, he quotes Isaiah 28. Interesting passage. Because in the context of Isaiah 28, it's a context of judgment. It's a context in which Israel was not listening to God's clear, correct word that called them back to covenant, that called them to repentance, that called them to trust in him so that they might experience his blessing. And because they rejected his word, God says he would send them a foreign nation who would speak to them in foreign languages and they wouldn't be able to understand. And this would be a sign of God's judgment. And so what's Paul's point here? Paul's point is that meaningless, unintelligible, misunderstood language does not invite people in, but rather pushes people out. Misunderstood, meaningless, unintelligible language does not invite people in, but rather pushes people out. Have you ever been an outsider? My first job was at Discount Tire Company out of high school. And it was in South Houston in a predominantly Spanish-speaking context. I was one of the few people that didn't speak Spanish. And I heard conversations going on all day, laughing, having fun. I kind of felt like Michael Scott in the office when he said, I love an inside joke. I've always wanted to be a part of one. That's what I felt like for like four years. What was the problem? I couldn't understand. And this was the problem at Corinth. So Paul says, on the other hand, if I'll prophesy, then they will be convicted by all. Sin will be exposed. They will worship and experience God's presence. So in other words, clear, correct communication, speech is vital for both edification for Christians and the evangelism or the evangelization of non-Christians. That's why we want to speak clearly. And so let me just take a minute. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to fill you with the hope of eternal life, let me just take a moment and say, I don't want to be like Corinth. We don't want to be like Corinth. We want to speak clearly about the best news that we could ever know. And that news is the good news of the gospel. My wife and I struggled with infertility and miscarriages for years. And when, when we were finally able by God's grace to have children, I remember walking home from work and I would literally, I would walk or run as fast as I could because I wanted to fly through that door and see my kids crawling towards me because we had so wanted children for so many years. It was such a gift to have them crawl up in my lap and just enjoy being in their presence. But there was one thing I did not like is when they crawled up into my presence and they had a dirty diaper that smelled like death. It was awful. Good thing my children aren't here to my right, sitting. I'm not gonna point them out. The problem was, one, they had a dirty diaper. Two, there was nothing they could do to do it. They had nothing they could do to change it. We had to change it for them and clean them up so that they could be in our presence. 
Friends, that's the gospel. Right? God created you and me to enjoy and to be in his presence. Because we, we believe that in God's presence is fullness of joy. But there's a problem. The problem is our sin. We have not loved God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved others as ourselves. We've committed sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire. And we've been greedy. We've been selfish. We've been angry. We've spoken with malice. We've, we've gossiped. And because we are sinful and God is perfectly holy and righteous and perfect, we cannot enter into his presence. And friends, there is nothing we can do about it. We can't clean ourselves up enough to enter into his holy and perfect and blessed presence. But the good news of the gospel is that God has taken the initiative to send his son who willingly came for the joy set before him and he endured the cross. He died in our place. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we had to die for our sin so that through trusting in his life and death and resurrection, what does God do? God enacts that sweet exchange. Jesus takes our sin and we receive Jesus's righteous, obedient life so that what? So that we can enter into God's presence with joy, with hope, with confidence. And you know what? Today can be the day that you can enter into his presence by trusting in Jesus by placing your confidence and your hope in him. But you know what the Christian life is not? The Christian life is not the Nike slogan, just do it. The Christian life is, it's been done for you, so rest in it. Jesus did it for us. All we have to do is rest in it. Paul goes on, verses 26 through 35, and tells us that worship is orderly. This is point number three. Worship is orderly, not chaotic. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. Each in turn, let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what's said. If a revelation's made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. You might all be learned and be encouraged in the spirits of prophets or subject to prophets. Why? Well, because God, why does he give this instruction? Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches and the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Imagine coming in on Sunday mornings through those doors, and instead of following along in the songs that we sing, everyone sings whatever song they feel like singing. Or during the time of teaching, everyone just starts learning and sharing, speaking on whatever they have been learning and reading about. It would be chaos. In the same way, people at Corinth were, were coming into worship, saying whatever they wanted to say, speaking over one another, talking at the same time, being disruptive. And as a result, they were not being built up in Christ. So what does Paul do? He instructs them. He, he provides order 
to their public gathering, right? So to summarize, if you come together and want to speak tongues, it has to be orderly. Two or three, and interpret. As for prophecy, speak in an orderly way. Let others weigh what's said. Again, the, the point, right? There's a, there's a standard of truth that they can, they can weigh, they can evaluate if it's true. And if this can't be done with tongues and prophecy, he says to be silent. Both men and women, that's important. Because the next verse I'm about to jump into, get all the, get all the emphasis, but I want, you to say, I want you to see that he tells actually both men and women to be quiet if they, if they can't speak in an orderly way, if they can't speak in a way that builds up others. And the basis for the order is a simple answer, God. Corporate worship should be a reflection of God's character. Corporate worship should be a reflection of God's character. And Paul goes on. And Paul here, I want to be very careful and clear, Paul here addresses a specific problem happening in the Corinthian church. What was the problem? Apparently, and we read this in verses 34 to 35, apparently there were some wives who were being disruptive by asking questions and bringing disorder. They were asking disruptive, disorderly, selfish questions. And as a result, they were bringing shame to their husbands. So what does Paul say? Well, let me just take a moment to say a few things. First, again, we can't miss the fact that Paul's concerned overall about order and that he's addressing a specific question happening at Corinth that apparently wasn't happening in the other churches because he didn't address it. Let me also say that this passage, these verses have been used and abused to sinfully hurt women. And if that's happened to you, I just want to say, I'm so sorry. God created you, women. God created you. He gave you gifts. And those gifts are good for our body. We need your gifts to help build us up. As a fellow image bearer of God, you are equal in worth and value and dignity. In fact, in the ancient world, it's interesting, in the ancient world, women weren't allowed to speak, period. But back in 1 Corinthians eleven five, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we saw that women were praying and prophesying in church. So what does Paul do? He says, continue using your gifts, but do so in an honorable, orderly way. So Paul speaks to this specific problem so that they would use their gifts rightly. We believe the same today here at Watermark. Right? We believe that God has given us clear teaching on how to order his church. It's not our church. 
It's his church that Jesus died to obtain with his own blood. And 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 1 both make clear that the office of pastor or elder or overseer is given to biblically qualified men who are able to teach so that they can bear the burden of leadership and protect the church from false teaching. And this is for our good. But hear this, outside of this office of pastor, overseer, elder, women, we want you to use your gifts in every space in the church to teach, to encourage, to serve, to have mercy. This is for our good. I mean, I can't even begin to count the ways We'd be here for the next three weeks if I were just to recount the ways the Lord has used my wife's gifts to build me up. She's taught me. She's admonished me. She's called out sin in my life. She's faithfully loved me. And I would not be the Christian I am today apart from her. And so women, we want you to use your gifts. If you you don't, we, we can't be the church that God's called and designed us to be. And so the question for us to answer is, will we take God at his word and use the gifts that he's given us? So how should we think, well, before we close, point number four is really quick. Worship should be ordered by God's word. That's what he says in the last four verses. I, I love this pastoral moment with Paul. Paul actually anticipates their their objections. He says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, these are hard things to receive and to hear and to understand, but they're God's word, so they're good. And they're for our good. So how should we think about these gifts as we gather together on Sundays? If you fast forward to the New Testament from Deuteronomy 18, which I talked about earlier, Acts 3 tells us that Jesus is that final prophet God sent. Jesus is that final prophet Moses spoke about. He is the final and perfect revelation of God who came to fulfill all of God's saving promises. He tells his disciples in John chapter five, Jesus says, if you believed in Moses, you believe in me. Why? Because Moses wrote of me. Deuteronomy 18 is one passage. John 14, 6, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Did you catch that? It doesn't say he just spoke the truth. He says, I am the truth. He's the better final prophet. Hebrews 1 tells us that at many times and in many ways, insert there the entire Old Testament, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is God's final revelation. And he has been given to us and our salvation. And now we have God's true and authoritative revelation written down for us in the scriptures. So that what? 
so that we might know and delight in the good news that King Jesus has come as the better prophet, priest, and king. And now we have the privilege to be a part of God's mission of proclaiming this good news that we have in God's word to one another. And to be a part of God's mission as we proclaim this gospel to every tribe and language and people and nation. And the question for you and me is, how are we using our gifts to build each other up? As we close, I just want to take a moment for us just to think about God's grace in giving us Christ, in giving us his spirit, in giving us his word, in giving us gifts, in giving us one another. God has provided everything that you and I need that we might find our joy and our hope in Christ. And if we are going to take full advantage of that, we need to do it collectively because we are better collectively than we are individually. He's committed to you and me and has provided everything we need to be conformed more into the image of his son. And part of that process is his use of you and me in each other's lives. I don't know if you've ever heard about or seen the Cologne Cathedral. The Cologne Cathedral in Cologne, Germany is Germany's most visited landmark. At five stories tall, it is the tallest twin-spired church in the world. What's interesting about this church is that construction began in the 1200s and stopped, resumed in the 1400s and stopped and then resumed again and was completed in the 1800s. And for you math people, that's 600 years it took to build this thing. Now imagine those first people tasked with the building of that cathedral. You're given a shovel. Maybe one person has a bigger shovel or a smaller shovel. Maybe one person has a square shovel or one person has a pick or one person has a, a round shovel and you're just given a shovel and you start to dig. Just doing your part. You probably have no idea what that cathedral would become, what that little mound of dirt would become. You're just doing your part and people would come along after you and they'd do their part and people would come along after you and 600 years later, that thing was constructed. Friends, that's how God describes the church. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are God's building and God is building us up in Christ into something beautiful. And you and I can play a part in that work of building up one another so that God in his purposes that we can't see that God can use our words and God can use our gifts to build each other up that we might find our joy and hope and satisfaction in Christ. So friends, don't waste your words. Don't waste your gifts. Use them. In a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, God will do something in us because he's committed to us to build something beautiful. So don't underestimate the power of your gifts and your words in your brother's or sister's life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Thank you for giving us everything that we need.
If you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? And not only has you, have you given us your son, you've given us your spirit to gift us, to fill us, to guide us, to lead us. And you've given us gifts to be used in other people's lives that those gifts might be used to encourage, to strengthen, to comfort. Father, remind us this morning that we are better together than we are individually. We need each other. People need our gifts and words, and we need other people's gifts and words to find our joy in Christ, to be conformed more into an image. So we pray, Lord, this morning that you would do that in us by your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.